with me and turn at the same time, <laughs> turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, actually chapter 2. We're going to be covering 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 17 to 20, and then we'll go into chapter 3 and cover verses 1 through 10 as well. And so that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm only going to read the, um, the three verses in chapter 2, and then we'll get into uh, the rest of the, the verses as well as chapter 3. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And Father, we once again, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It truly is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would use it, God, to minister to us, to, Father, change us and, Lord, develop that biblical mindset that you have called each, and, each of us to have, Lord. And so, Lord, speak to us tonight through your word. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So you may be seated. And so I'd just like to welcome everyone on Facebook as well. Glad that you can join, join us tonight. <clears throat> so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we've been, we've been discussing, we've covered chapter 1 and chapter 2. And our theme tonight is persevering in the gospel. Our title tonight is Standing in the Power of the Gospel. Standing in the Power of the Gospel. And in these verses, especially chapter 3, but in this section of this letter, Paul encouraged the new church to stand against persecution. And so that's what we want to see tonight. In our previous studies of this letter, we talked about how the gospel was delivered in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, we talked about how the gospel was received and how the Thessalonians received the gospel. So today, we want to talk about how to stand in the power of the gospel or how to stand in the gospel. So how the gospel was delivered how the gospel was received is what we've studied already, and now we want to see how to stand in the power of the gospel or how to stand in the gospel. So in these verses, we're going to be looking at Paul's plans in chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we'll be looking at Timothy's visit. And then in chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, we will look at Timothy's report. Of course, Paul 
sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to gauge how the believers were doing there in Thessalonica. And so uh, Timothy had a report for Paul and Silas and how the um, believers were doing there in Thessalonica. So how to stand in the power of the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Let's look again at, at verse 17. Paul states here, but we, brethren, of course, the we is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Interestingly, this term or this um, where he says here, have been taken away, it literally means to be rendered an orphan, to be rendered an orphan. And so Paul continues the intimate family imagery that he used in verse 7 and uh, verse 11 of chapter 2 to illustrate his relationship with the church in Thessalonica. If you look with me at uh, verse 7 in chapter 2, Paul stated to them, but we were gentle among you, and then he says, just as a nursing mother cherishes her, her own children. So he uses uh, nursing mother as an illustration for his love for uh, the believers here. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. And so he uses the illustration of a father to communicate his love for these believers. And so Paul uses another illustration here, and he says to be, uh, we have been taken from you, which literally means to be rendered an orphan. And so to Paul, it was as if his family was being torn apart. That's how he felt what was going on. Of course, they were here in Thessalonica. They visited Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, Timothy. You can read about it in Acts chapter 17. We won't go there tonight. But um, they went in the synagogue, as they always do. They go straight for the synagogue, Paul does, and the, and the, believe, uh, the apostles and they went in teaching Christ and him crucified. And, of course, um, the Jewish leaders in the synagogue um, get angry because they're preaching, uh, they're preaching Christ and him crucified. And so they chased Paul out of there. In Acts chapter 17, they actually went into the house of Jason looking for Paul and Silas, couldn't find them. And so they dragged uh, Jason and the other believers to the city council, um, accused them of turning the world upside down, uh, which is, I like that. <laughs> I want to be accused of that, <laughs> preaching Christ, and so we're turning the world upside down. Really, it's right side up, right, if you think about it. And so um, they accused them of that. They, they charged them. They stirred up the crowd. They stirred up the mob, it says in Acts chapter 17. And so um, after they charged them, they, they ordered them not to, not to teach Christ anymore, to preach Christ anymore, and they sent them on their way. 
the very next verse, it says that they, the, immediately the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night. And so the leaders went to Jason's house looking specifically for Paul and Silas. They were the leaders of the group. They couldn't find them, and so um, it says that they, they snuck them out of there in the middle of the night. And so this is why, why Paul is saying here, having been taken away from you for a short time. And so to Paul, it was as if his family was being torn apart. This, this, this term here, for a short season, literally means for the time of an hour. And so Paul had hoped that their separation would be brief. He didn't want to leave. He didn't want to go, but he had to. Otherwise, they would have, they would have killed him. <laughs> and so, and Silas as well. But he had hoped that their separation would be brief. He desired to go back and visit them. We'll see that in the next few verses there, that he wanted to go back and teach them some more about Christ and um, about Christ and him crucified. So Paul had hoped that their separation would be brief. He says here, he says, not in heart. They're, they were taken away from them for a short time in presence, not in heart, though. And so, of course, the heart being the center and seat of spiritual life, the, it's also used of the soul or the mind interchangeably. It is the fountain and seat of the thoughts, the passions, the desires, the appetites, the affections, the purposes, endeavors, as we see here. Um, Paul says, although they took us away physically, you're still in our heart. We're still thinking about you. We're still praying for you. We still care for you. We still love you. And our desires, we'll see, our desire is that we want to be there with you. And so although they may have taken us out of here physically, we're still with you in spirit. And so Paul wanted to give them that comfort and to assure them that, um, that Paul and the apostles were thinking about them. He says that they endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. And so, as, as I said before, Paul and the apostles, they wanted to go back and see these believers. We stand in the gospel together as a family. And possibly even closer than the family we were born into. And maybe you have found that to be true, where as believers, we have this unity in Christ where it causes us to be even closer than our natural family that we're born into. And so um, this is where, where Paul was referring to here. We stand united with one mind and one purpose. First Peter 3.8 says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Be of one mind. And so in verse 18, we see that they attempted to go back to Thessalonica 
on more than one occasion. Look with me at verse 18. He says, therefore, and whenever you see a therefore, ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? <laughs> because what he's going to he's going to say something based off of what he just said. That's what the therefore is there for. And so he starts off in verse 18. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And so they wanted to go back. Paul wanted to go back. He wanted to assure them that that he wanted to go back to them, and he, they tried multiple times to go back to them. But he says something interesting here. He says, but Satan hindered us. You know, it's been said God works in mysterious ways. But really, for us as believers, as, as an unbeliever, I can understand that, that saying. But for believers, God works in unknown ways, if you think about it, in unknown ways. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24 says, A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? Think about that. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? If God is leading, God is ordering the steps, God is, is in charge because he's sovereign, and some, most of the time we do not understand what God is doing, right? We don't. We don't understand what God is doing most of the time. But God, our steps are ordered by the Lord. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary, they, they commented on this verse, and, and I thought it was really, really good. Uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary is my, my go-to commentary. It's uh, from John Walverd and Roy B. Zuck. Very, um, it's written in a way that is very understandable down to my level. <laughs> and so I really, I really like this commentary. But anyways, it says here in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it says, God directs man's decisions and conduct. Since God has the ultimate say in one's life, it is often difficult for a person to understand fully his own way. We understand a little bit we can see what God is doing, but fully, we don't understand what God is doing. And so, Paul here tells them that they wanted to go back to them multiple times, but they were unable because God was in control. But Paul, interestingly, says, but Satan hindered us. This word, this term here, hindered us, literally means to cut into. It was used of impeding persons by breaking up the road or by placing an obstacle sharply in the path. It means to impede one's course by cutting off his way. And so, really, Satan did everything he could to stop the will of God. He did everything he could to stop the apostles 
from going back to these new believers. Remember, he had only been with them for three Sabbaths. And so Satan, knowing that if Paul and the apostles were able to go back and teach these believers, that they would grow and they would mature. And so it says, he says that Satan hindered us. Paul recognized and acknowledged that Satan was the one ultimately behind the attacks. He was the one ultimately behind the attacks. Of course, when they were chased out of Thessalonica, that was Satan. He is ultimately behind the evil that comes against us as well. Now, we do know, and we'll see in a minute, that we, we know that God is sovereign and that Satan is on a leash. And that leash can only go so far. We see that in the book of Job. And he can only do what God allows him to do. By the world standards, it would seem that Satan and the Lord are equal. And there's this battle going on between two equal parties. And we don't know who's going to win, but we hope it's God. <laughs> That's kind of how, how the, the world portrays it. But in actuality, is it a battle? <laughs> no. It may be a battle between us and Satan, right? But between God and Satan, it's not much of a battle. It's God allowing him to do what he allows him to do, allows him to go only so far. And so Paul recognizes here that Satan hindered, us, hindered them. And we would do well as well to recognize that the evil that comes against us is from Satan. Immediately, many people, when the evil comes, they want to blame it on God, especially the world, especially unbelievers. They'll blame it on God. Why did God allow the child to die? Why did God allow this accident to happen? Instantly, they blame it on the Lord. But Satan is in this world. And he is the God, small g, of this world. And so, and God allows him to do what he allows him to do, allows him to go only so far. And so Paul says, but Satan hindered us. This word Satan, the name Satan, means adversary or accuser. And so Satan, he is the adversary of God and Christ, or of God and the Christ. In Matthew 12, verse 26, it says, If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? As you continue to read there, Jesus says that if you're not for me, then you are against me. And so we see here that Satan has his own kingdom. Therefore, he is against God. He is the adversary of God 
and of Jesus. He is also the adversary and the accuser of God's people. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Luke says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, that he may put you through this strainer, through this stress, if you will. Jesus went on to say, but I have prayed for you. Satan's desire is to sift, sift us all as wheat. That is his desire. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? And so he is the adversary of God's people. The you in this verse is plural. It's the plural form, meaning when Jesus was speaking to Peter, he was speaking about all the disciples, that Satan wanted to sift all the disciples out. So therefore, he's speaking of us as well, that he wants to sift all of us out. He wants to put them and us through difficult times. That's what his job is. That's what his desire is to sift all of us out. He is the adversary of God's people. And then finally, he is the adversary of all of mankind as well. In Luke chapter 13, verse 16, it says, Jesus speaking, so ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. Of course, Jesus um, saw this woman. Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, and he just looked at the woman, and he healed her. The woman didn't ask to be healed, but Jesus looked at her and healed her. And then that's when he said that for 18 years that she had this infirmity, that she was bent over, and Jesus healed her. And it says, whom Satan has bound. So somehow Satan had something to do with her infirmity that she had for 18 years. But Jesus loosed, uh, healed her, set her free from that, um, from that spirit of infirmity. And so we see that, that Satan is the adversary of God and of Jesus. He is the adversary of God's people, and he is the adversary of all mankind. What the one thing that he wants to do is he wants to keep people from coming to Christ. He wants to keep people from getting saved. And so Paul recognizes here that Satan hindered them. And then in verse 19, Paul goes on to say, for what is our hope or joy or crowning of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. Paul's desire was to see the Thessalonians standing in the very presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes. He asked, in essence, what would be the greatest blessing, what would be the greatest blessing he could possibly receive at the judgment seat of Christ? He didn't say that I would be there. <laughs> no, 
that they would be there. That his spiritual children would be there at the judgment seat of Christ as well. That they would be in the very presence of Jesus. His hope, his joy, his crown was to see his spiritual children in the presence of Jesus. Parents that are here tonight, I'm very confident that that is your desire for your children as well. That your children would come to Jesus, be saved, and when either they're raptured in the, uh, they go in the rapture or they leave these bodies, they're in the very presence of the Lord. That is the, I'm sure that is the desire for all parents. This is what Paul's heart was toward these believers, that they would be in the very presence of Jesus. So we have Paul's plans, and really, in a nutshell, um, although Paul had these plans and he wanted to go back to them, ultimately, God was in, uh, God was in charge, and it is ultimately his plans that are for fulfilled. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see Timothy's visit. In verse 1, it says, therefore, again, we see the therefore, <laughs> when we can no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Paul needed, he needed to know the condition of the believers. It was tearing him apart. His heart was there with them. He needed to know how they were doing, how they were, how they were they enduring because if they were persecuting the apostles, surely they were uh, uh, persecuting them. They went to Jason's house and persecuted them. And so Paul needed to know the condition of these believers. And maybe you have found yourself needing to know about a loved one, and you just had to know if they were okay, or else you just couldn't rest. You couldn't be at peace. Have you ever experienced that where it could be a loved one, it could be a friend? You just had to know how they were doing. And because you didn't know, you didn't have this peace in your heart, this peace in your mind. You couldn't be at rest because you haven't heard from them. And you just don't know if they're okay. This is what, what Paul was at. He needed to know how they were doing. And so... After they could no longer endure it, they stayed in, in Athens, Paul and, and Silas, and they sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out how the believers were doing. He says, so they, we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God. This word minister is the word diakonos. It means it it. It has in view 
a servant in relationship to his work. Compared to doulos, maybe you've heard the word doulos, it's a bond servant or slave. That has in view the relationship, the servant with the relationship to his master. But this word diakonos has to do with the relationship with his work. And so, naturally, what was the work Timothy was called to? We see that in verse 2, the second part of verse 2. He says that we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, he says, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. This word established means to make stable, to place firmly, to set fast or to fix. Really, in a nutshell, to strengthen. So they sent Timothy to strengthen the believers. And really, the question is, what are all believers called to do? Us here tonight as believers, what are we called to do? Strengthen and encourage each other. I was reminded as I was studying this, uh, in a nutshell, what Jeanette said, be a blessing. That's what we are called to do. This is what Timothy was called to do, was to go and be a blessing to the believers there in Thessalonica. He was called to go and strengthen them and encourage them. He was called to be a blessing, and each one of us are called to be a blessing. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, the writer of Hebrews says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so we are called to be a blessing to each other, to be a blessing to others. And this is what Timothy was called to do as he was sent back to Thessalonica, he was called to strengthen them, to, in, to establish them, and to encourage them in their faith. He continues on in verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. The afflictions, of course, was the persecution. Of course, we talked about that already, the persecution, Paul and Silas being chased out of the city, and the persecution of of the believers there in Thessalonica. And so Paul tells them that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. This word shaken, it means to agitate or to disturb or to trouble. Paul didn't want any of these believers to be shaken by the afflictions that they had gone through. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. That we are appointed to this. That word appointed means to be set. And really it has the intention of by God's intent. To be set by God's intent. It means to be destined. So Paul, now he first talked about how Satan hindered, hindered them to go back to Thessalonica. The multiple times that they wanted to go back, but now... He is actually teaching them the sovereignty of God. 
Although Satan is at work, ultimately, God is in full control. God is sovereign. And so he tells them, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this, to this, actually by God's intent. Verse 4, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation. And so Paul had already shared with them about the tribulation that they would be that would happen. Of course, Paul was speaking from experience that everywhere Paul went, he was basically chased out of the city, right? <laughs> and so Paul was speaking from experience. And so he shared with the believers there that they would suffer tribulation. And really, you know, we would do well if we were to be blessed enough to disciple a new believer or be around new believers to expose them to the truth and to the fact that um, the spiritual warfare that we, that we are involved in, it's not always roses. It's not always just uh, we're all going to get together and sing Kumbaya, right? Satan is at, at, at work, and we have this spiritual warfare that we are involved in, that Satan is involved in with us. And so um, Paul tells them that we are appointed to this. We, have, we, are, we are destined to suffer tribulation. He says, just as it happened, you know. And so Paul reminds them about the tribulation that not only they, he told them about, but what they experienced as well. In verse 5, he says, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. And so no doubt Satan's attempt is to attack new believers and so intensely. And if you think back when you were a new believer, how intense the spiritual warfare was and um it's kind of, and I'm thinking back as I'm, as I'm saying this, right? It's something new. It's something you've never experienced before. And yet it's real and it's intense. And if you're not expecting it, it catches you by surprise. If you haven't been taught about it, you know nothing about it. And so this is what Satan's uh, goal is is to attack new believers so that they walk away from the faith, so that they no longer follow Jesus, so that they no longer read the word, so they no longer go to church and be around other believers and have a desire to grow in their faith. That's what his plan is. That's what his goal is. And so Paul, Paul not only told them about it, but he reminded them of the experience that they had in the tribulations and that ultimately all believers are appointed to this even though paul recognized earlier that it was satan working against them he now teaches them the sovereignty of god satan can only do that which god allows him to do 
Paul wanted to assure them that even though the apostles were being persecuted, they were in God's will. And that's another thing as well. As, as persecution comes, we can, we can begin to think, well, I must be out of God's will because I'm being attacked. Well, really, it's just the opposite, right? If you're in God's will, Satan is going to attack. Because you are doing the will of God, you are following the Lord, you are obeying the Lord, so therefore, he's going to want to attack you even more. Those that aren't following the Lord, why attack them? <laughs> just leave them right where they're at. They're just fine. They're right where he wants them. And so if you are in, are in God's will, expect persecution. Expect the enemy to turn up the heat, if you will. He did not want them to fall away from the faith. When, as I said, when things, when bad things are happening in our lives, we tend to think that we are not in God's will. And as I said, this is not true all the time. So we had Paul's plans. We had Timothy's visit. And next in verses 6 through 10, we have Timothy's report. In verse 6, it says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and, th and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. This word affliction primarily means a pressing or pressure, anything that burdens the spirit. When I was reading this, I can hear, I can hear Paul breathing a sigh of relief, if you will. Because remember, he was in agony, if you will. His spirit was in agony because he wanted to go back to them, but Satan hindered him to go back. And so they sent Timothy, when he could no longer endure it, he sent Timothy to go find out how they were doing. And now Timothy comes back to them, and he gives them a good report about them. And I can almost hear Paul with that sigh of relief. All right. They're standing firm in their faith. They're good. They're strong in the Lord. They're enduring. They're persevering. All the persecutions were worth it knowing that you have remained steadfast in your faith. This is what I think what, what Paul in his heart and in his mind he was thinking. And you know, persecutions, wouldn't it be worth it if you were persecuted and yet those that you were ministering to, your children, they were enduring, they were growing in their faith, they were continually continually walking in the Lord, would it be worth it to be persecuted? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because one day they're going to stand in the very presence of the Lord. This is what Paul was, was experiencing with these believers. 
He wanted them to stand in the very presence of the Lord. He wanted them to grow in, in the Lord, to grow in their faith. And so when it was all said and done for Paul, when he received the report from Timothy, it was worth it. The persecution was worth it. Knowing that in spite of your suffering, your loved one is going to stand in the very presence of Jesus, forgiven, it is worth any persecution you could receive. This is Paul's heart towards his spiritual children. And this is our heart towards our loved ones as well. In verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. This word perfect, perfect is, is speaking ethically, ethically, so it means to strengthen or to perfect or to complete, to make one what he ought to be. So in essence, Paul wanted God to finish what he had begun in them, and he wanted God to use him and his fellow laborers to accomplish this. He wanted to see God finish the work that he had begun in them. Philippians 1.6, maybe the Lord reminded you of this, of this very verse. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. This was Paul's desire for these believers. This is our desire for those that God has um, placed us over to minister as well, our spiritual children, if you will. And so there is a reason why it is called the finished work of Jesus. Have you ever heard that term? the finished work of Christ or the finished work of Jesus. There's a, there's a reason why it is called the finished work of Jesus. We're going to close with John chapter 19, verses 28 and 30. It should be up on the screen, yeah. And so in John chapter 19, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. All things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That word, that term right there, it is finished, is the word to telestai, which means paid in full. They found uh, receipts, tax receipts, written on papyri, stamped on it to telestai, meaning the taxes are paid in full. And so Jesus said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What is finished? What is paid in full? What is completed? His redemptive work was complete. 
his work to redeem each and every one, each and every one of us from the slave market of sin. He redeemed us. It is complete. He had become sin for us. The scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we may be, might become the righteousness of God in him. He paid the penalty for our sin. Now, if Christ did not shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for our sins, we would still be in our sin. We would still be separated from God. But because he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And so his very last words on the cross, it is finished. It is paid in full. And this is what Paul wanted the, uh, the Thessalonians to be encouraged with. He said, we thank, we, for what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. He, he wanted them to finish well. He wanted them to be confident that the work that Jesus began in them, the finished work of Christ that he began in them, he would complete it. And it is that same work that he is doing in us as well. And we can be confident as well that the work he is doing in us, the work that he has begun in us, he will complete it. He will finish it. He has already redeemed us. He has already become sin for us. And he has already paid for our sin. And then one day we will see him face to face. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day when I see my King, my Lord, face to face. Father, we thank you, Lord. Oh, God. As I read these, as we read these scriptures, Lord, we can just hear the heart of Paul and the love that he had for these, for his spiritual children, Lord. And it is that same love, Lord God, that, that Paul had for them that you have for us, and even more. And so, God, we give you thanks, Lord. I pray, Lord, that those that you have placed in our lives as our spiritual children, or even our children, those, God, that you have called us to Help them grow in their faith. Help them, Lord, to persevere and to endure. Oh, God, I pray that you would give us that same heart that Paul had. Just a desire, Lord God, to see them grow and to see them, Father, um, endure. And so, God, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the work that you have begun in us. We thank you for your finished work, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the work that you are still doing in us. And we are confident, Lord. We are confident that you will complete it. You will finish it. Lord, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. You cannot lie. You cannot deny yourself. 
And so we thank you, God. We take you at your word where you magnify your word above your name. And for that, we give you thanks. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so thank you for coming out and leading us in worship tonight. We appreciate it. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday or tomorrow night, actually. Tomorrow night, 7 p.m., we'll be in room 316. And so hopefully we'll see you then. God bless you.